We turn in God's inspired word this morning to 1 John chapter 4. First John chapter 4, I'm going to begin reading at verse 9. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in him, and he in us, because he hath given us of his Spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. The text to which I call your attention on this occasion of the Lord's Supper is verse 16 of 1 John 4. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, in this entire section that we have been considering in 1 John chapter 4, John has been setting before us very clearly the magnificent love of God that has embraced us and drawn us into his fellowship. That's the source of our joy, our covenant God taking us into the fellowship of his own life in and through Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord. This love of God is the source of our life, of our joy, of our salvation, and therefore of the enjoyment of our fellowship with God. The salvation that's set before us in this section and described in terms of living in fellowship with God is a salvation that is particular. It's only for those whose life is found in Christ Jesus 
and therefore whom God has given to his only begotten Son in sovereign and his eternal decree of election. We've seen in verses 9 and 10 of this chapter how that love of God was manifest to us. God has done so by sending his only begotten Son into this world that we might live through him. In the text before us this morning, the focus is not on the manifestation of that love, although we cannot help but be reminded of that wonderful gift as we gaze upon God's love witnessed even by the signs and seals of the Lord's Supper. But verse 16 would have us focus on the amazing truth that you and I have fellowship with God, the God who is love, and therefore whose love is particular, special. Those who are the objects of his love are so for his sake and by his sovereign choice. I call your attention then to God's particular love. Notice with me his love. Secondly, the particular nature of that love. And finally, dwelling in that particular love of God. We must begin by considering what it means that God is love. We Christians understand a concept such as love, not by our own opinion, but by that interpretation of that concept given us in God's own word. We considered at length the manifestation of God's love when we gave attention to that section, verses 7 through 11, and particularly verses 9 and 10 of this chapter. Here, however, the focus is different. When we consider the truth set forth in this text, namely that God's love is particular, we must begin by realizing that that love is one of the eternal perfections of the triune God. God is not just one who bestows love upon others. He is not only a God who loves, he is love. The inspired apostle first called attention to this in verse 8 of this chapter when he said, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. And so he brings that truth back to the foreground in this text. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. Now if you were to stop there, you might fall into the error of thinking about God's love in human terms. Many go astray by using man's love as the standard by which they define God's love and making their own conclusions, therefore, as to what is God's love and who are the objects of his love. But it's a serious error to set up ourselves or our own notions as the standards by which we measure God. For one thing, any love that we have as creatures 
can only be a faint reflection of him who created us after his own image. But we have to also remember the effects of the fall into sin. That fall brought devastation to man from every point of view. Even the forms of affection and lust, which the world denotes as love, are but perversions of the biblical definition of love. Still more, even after having been born again and receiving the life of Christ, we still only have a faint reflection of the love of God. Indeed, everyone who is born again loves. When the life of Christ is found in us, we bear the expression of that life in love. That's been emphasized by the apostle throughout his first epistle, including the chapter before us. But our love is but a faint reflection of God's love. So the apostle doesn't stop after saying, and we have known and believed the love that God hath to us, but he continues, God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. That God is love means, as I've pointed out before, that God loves himself. In our consideration of verses 7 through 11 of this chapter, I pointed out that in the Old Testament, there are two words that are used to show two aspects of the love of God. The one word speaks of love as a fastening or joining together. God attaches himself to the objects of his love. And that word is used, for example, in Deuteronomy 7, verse 7, where Jehovah is portrayed as setting his love upon his people. The second word used in the Old Testament is a word that conveys love as a holy passion toward and delight in. God approaches the objects of his love with a holy desire to draw them to himself. And so we read in Jeremiah 31 verse 3, The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love, therefore with loving kindness have I drawn thee. In addition, the New Testament term, to which I've called your attention previously, agape, speaks of love as a direction of the will. A deliberate act of establishing a bond of perfect unity. God has loved us from eternity. His love for us is eternal and unchangeable. The doctrine of the Trinity, though very deep and profound for incomprehensible to us, is a doctrine profoundly significant. For among the three persons of the Godhead, there is a beautiful expression of love, a bond of perfect fellowship 
in intimate unity that Scripture speaks of as the covenant life of God. Scripture repeatedly refers to the relationship among the three persons of the Holy Trinity as a love relationship. So, in God, love is defined as the bond of perfectness. Colossians 3, verse 14. God not only may, God must love himself. He alone is the living God, infinitely exalted above all creatures, who alone is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. All must serve him. Indeed, all things were created for that very purpose. So God does and must love himself because he's the highest good. In love for himself... He seeks his glory above all else. He seeks himself and his own glory as the Holy One. You will understand, therefore, that when we are told that God is love, the implication is that he can only love that which is good and holy as he is. He cannot love any who oppose him. In his eternally perfect self-love, he's jealous of his own glory. He cannot love sin, nor the sinner. You realize, of course, that many would like to separate sin from the sinner. So you hear this idea God hates sin, but he loves the sinner. But you can never separate sin from the one who commits that sin. Sin itself is not a being. There is no sin without the sinner. And that's plainly set forth in Psalm 5, for example. In Psalm 5, verse 4, We read, For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. And a person might say, See, he hates wickedness. Evil shall not dwell with him. It doesn't speak of the sinner. Oh, but the text continues. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. You see, the hatred of the sinner lies in the very nature of God, the God who is love. Because his love is eternal and therefore self-centered, he cannot but hate those who oppose him. And the wicked are those who oppose him with all that they are. They blaspheme his name. They trample his holiness under their feet. They despise his word. If he would love them, he would deny his own holiness. In his love for himself, therefore, he has manifested his hatred of the sinner. Does this doctrine alarm you? After all, you've heard that all men are sinners. 
We have heard the judgment of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. All children of Adam equally deserve hell. The full expression of God's hatred of the wicked. But the text that we are considering indicates that there is a love of God for men. Indeed, we confess we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. And that alone is how we come to the Lord's table this morning to worship Him presently in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper to have fellowship with Him there. And as we make that confession, we have known and believed the love that God hath to us and stand before this amazing gospel of our salvation, we are led to consider the particular nature of the love of God. The question, of course, is, if all are sinners, how can God love any? The Bible clearly teaches that God does love some. He loves men, women, and children with the same perfect love with which he loves himself. In his love for them, he saves them. Still more, he loves those who are sinners. He saves not the righteous, but sinners. That's the essence of the gospel that we hear preached every week and that we embrace as we read the scriptures in our homes. How is it then that God can love any human being when all have sinned, all are sinners? We find the answer to that question recorded in the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17. Just before Jesus suffered the hellish agonies of the cross, he lifted up his voice in fervent prayer to his heavenly Father, a prayer that's recorded for our sake by the Spirit-inspired apostle. That prayer, in large measure, was a prayer of intercession that Jesus offered for his people. He said in verse 9, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. Now let me pick it up at verse 22. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them. Now notice this. As thou hast loved me, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world, O righteous Father. The world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. 
And now notice once again this last verse. And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. God loves Christ. God loves him as belonging to his own being, his own life. He loves him because he is his eternal son, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And that demonstrates, as I said before, that God loves himself. That's where all his love is focused. But God loves Christ as the head of the body, the head of the church, a people chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. In his sovereign good pleasure, God has chosen to reveal his own love life by taking a people in Jesus Christ into the fellowship of his love and by revealing that love to that world of his choosing. It's true, we are sinners. And as we've shown, God cannot love sinners, for that would be contrary to his own being. But he loves us not as sinners, but as members of the body of Christ, and therefore as those whom Christ has redeemed. He loves us, Because he looks upon us in Christ. He sees us as those whose sins have been washed away in the blood of Christ. He sees us white, pure, and holy. So much so, it is as if we had never had nor committed any sin. That's the only possibility of God loving us. Looking upon us in his own holy Son. And that's what we must see in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper this morning. The holy God looks upon us and sees the Son of his love. He looks upon us and sees the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. And seeing us in Christ, he calls us to the fellowship of his own life at his table this morning. That particular love of God is absolutely amazing, as you, the objects of that love, well know. He loved us while we were yet sinners. The Bible doesn't say he loved us as sinners, but he loved us while we were yet sinners. In his eternal love, he saw us in that living connection with his Son. He sent Christ to accomplish his own eternal purpose in our salvation. You see what a comforting doctrine is the truth of sovereign election. God looking upon us in Christ, sovereignly, out of his own good pleasure, choosing us in Christ from eternity? 
Remember Jeremiah's prophecy? The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. He loved us, not because we were such wonderful people. He loved us, and he loves us now for his own namesake. He loves us in Christ, because he loves himself. And so he has manifested that love, that particular love, by sending his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. So he embraces us and takes us into the fellowship of his own covenant life. He that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. Now the text focuses on our personal knowledge of dwelling in that particular love of God. And that's how I want to bring to conclusion this sermon this morning. We have known the love that God hath to us. We have known it. You will notice that the Apostle speaks not only of our having known, but of our having believed. The two go together. But by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the knowledge is listed first. I want to say a few things about the relationship between those two. There's always a danger of an improper emphasis on one or the other. Some would emphasize knowledge and yet show a dead orthodoxy. They're interested to one degree or another about doctrine, but very little concerned about practice. So they might find it easy to talk about the love of God as we've been doing today and might even agree with what has been taught, but that love is rarely, if ever, seen coming to expression in their lives, especially toward those whom they think are unworthy of their love. Others downplay the importance of knowledge, simply focus on believing, by which they usually speak about believing what they feel, But Scripture makes clear that these two elements spoken of by the Apostle in this text are crucial and inseparable. The Apostle doesn't even make this confession until he has set forth the truth clearly and concretely. He has said, we, the Apostles, have seen and do testify so that there is something of substance, of truth, that stands behind this confession. In the Apostles' day, it was important to establish that fact because there were religions or cults that had departed from certain fundamental doctrines of Holy Scripture and yet claimed to believe in the love of God. So that John 
was, and when they spoke about the love of God, they were talking about a love that you could know by feeling it. So that John was confronting the error of mysticism, an error that has reared its ugly head throughout the history of the church. It sets aside the word of God and essentially bypasses Christ and his incarnation and sacrificial death as the manifestation of the love of God. So the apostle would remind us that this love of God, which he has been proclaiming, is love that we have known. That knowledge is not simply intellectual knowledge. It's the knowledge of a living relationship. The knowledge, therefore, of faith. It's the knowledge of all that God has been to us in the past and all that he is to us now. For I dwell in him and he in me. No greater knowledge can there be than that knowledge of a living faith. To illustrate this, A man might study the doctrine of marriage and he might read everything he can lay his hands on concerning the marriage relationship. He might examine those in that relationship and gain many insights by his study. But there is nothing that can compare with living the living experience of actually being in that relationship. And so it is with the knowledge spoken of here, the knowledge of the love that God has to us. And literally, the text speaks of a knowledge of of the love that God has in us. It lives in us. It's the source of our Christian life and of our joy. But not only have we known, we have believed. The two, as I said, are inseparable. John has no intention of setting the two over against each other as if to say, we have known, but we've also believed. Rather, he's emphasizing the certainty of that which we believe. Our faith is an established faith. We believe that God has his love in us. That particular love of God sets us apart for his glory. And we believe that not because we know ourselves as such good people. So much more worthy of the love of God than other people. Rather, we have seen the amazing wonder, the humanly inexplicable wonder of God having loved us and having sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. That love, divine love, 
has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom Christ has given us. So we abide in Christ, in the very fellowship of God, the God who is love. The Apostle Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 1 verse 8, when speaking of Christ, he says, Whom having not seen, ye love. In whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. We know the love that God has in us, and therefore we appropriate it, and we embrace it, and we delight in it, for we abide in Him, in His covenant fellowship, also as symbolized at the table of the Lord this morning. He has made His abode in our hearts, and to dwell in this rarefied atmosphere of God's love, God's particular love, is to have that love the controlling factor in our lives. Dwelling in God and He in me, my whole life is disciplined by that love. Love for God and love for the neighbor. And therefore I mortify, I wage war against and suppress everything within my old nature that's opposed to that principle of love, sinful affections, lusts, pride, self-seeking, covetousness, all such things. I fight against them. Beloved, this is life eternal. To know and believe the love that God hath to us. To dwell by faith in His fellowship. Knowing that we belong to Him body and soul in our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the joy of the Christian life. That's our only comfort in life and death. And in that joy, let us partake of the Lord's Supper this morning. Amen. Heavenly Father, we have known and believed the love that Thou hast in us. We dwell in Thy love. We rejoice in the wonder of thy grace. Bless us now, as thy word is sealed by the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. For Jesus' sake, amen.